Romans chapter 5. Uh, last time we dealt with verses 11 through 19. And that was all about, actually it was 12, 12 through 19. And that had to do, of course, with Adam and the reign of death that Adam brought upon all of us. And then the second Adam in whom we find life. And so very, very important passages and uh, foundational passages. Interestingly enough, um, chapter divisions don't always work this way. This one worked out pretty good, although there is a transitional aspect to it. But just look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it opens up with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we go to the end, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace must reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I think that's pretty cool when you think about it. Now, chapter divisions are not inspired, but you can just see Paul's thoughts here as he's bringing them forth to it. To expand just a little bit more, go back again, if you would, to chapter 4, verse 23. And it's talking about, um, of course, Abraham, uh, the father of faith. And Abraham, of course, justified by faith. And he becomes the example of faith, is what I mean by the father of faith. And verse 23 says, um, well, 22 says, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. And that idea of, ac of accounted and imputed is, is the same. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So then as we come down, we saw last week, as we looked the very blessings that we have Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Well, we should. Okay, that's hard to do. I'll admit, you know, uh, we can sometimes just start feeling sorry for ourselves. But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that, and here's why, tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for who? Who did he die for? He died for us. But what does the Bible say here that he died for? The ungodly, which is us. There you go. And so that's the way that the, that opened. We talked about that uh, two weeks ago. Dealt with Adam and uh, his fall and the imputation of uh, the fact that he was our federal head. All have fallen on Adam and then Christ, of course, is the federal head of all those that believe in him. So, so much for the review. Now let's go on to new material, starting in verse number 20. And I've entitled verse 20 and 21, the increase of grace. The increase of grace. There's saving grace, and then there's a grace that uh, actually comes to us 
means of grace, the building up, the sanctifying process, what God does for the Christian. Verse 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the first thing we see this morning is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. And, um, you know, we, like I say, we, the apostle, like a good teacher, repeats important parts again and again. It would be rather sad if there was a great truth given to us and we only heard it once. And if you happen to be, you know, taking a trip around the world in your mind when it was given, you missed it. And you never got another chance to hear it again. Well, we all got to be diligent students and try to listen as much as we can. Of course we do. But God is gracious, uh, just like we talked about in the first hour. He says things again and again and again. And uh, says it for our benefit because we so easily forget. You know, the purpose of the law, we naturally look on things as humans. And to us in our natural mind, two of the most horrible things that ever happened, and they were horrible, don't get me wrong, but in our human minds, the two of the most horrible things that ever happened was the fall, okay, Adam's fall, and then the death of Christ. Two of the most horrible things that ever happened. But you know what? God takes bad things, turns them into good things. God takes horrible things and turns them into great things. Okay. And so the most horrible things that ever happened actually are two of the greatest things that ever happened. Adam's fall kept us from just being in the garden in a state of innocence and, and brings us to the very throne room of God himself. And so what an amazing thing for those that know the Lord Jesus Christ as Christian. But not only that, the death of Christ makes all of this a reality for those that are in Christ. It's his death, his, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at the right hand of the Father that makes all of the difference in everything. The worst thing turned into the greatest thing that could happen. And this is the way that God works. Now, the purpose of the law is in verse 20. What's the purpose? Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The law entered that the offense might abound. Look at verse 13 of the chapter, and that's uh, or five, and that helps us to, to see. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, and that's a very important nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him to come. And Adam is the type, and Christ is the antitype. He's the fulfillment okay, of that. Now, it, it's easy to misunderstand these verses, you know. But do understand this. Sin was in the world before the law was actually codified. The moral law, the Ten Commandments we're talking about now. And of course, so then under Moses, other laws were given too which were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, sin was in the world, even though we didn't have a codified 
Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, there was an imperfect to us law that was embedded in our hearts just because we're humans made in the image of God. Okay. And the proof that sin was in the world is the fact that people died, and they died, and they died. Okay, so there's the proof of that. But once the law was codified, speaking of the Ten Commandments, there was a firm definition of sin that cannot, or I, I should say must not be changed or modified. Okay, there's a firm definition now, and we find that in the Ten Commandments. And when they're properly understood, the Ten Commandments, um, very simply, number one, no other gods except the true and living God. Number two, no idols. He can't be worshipped by images or any idols or anything because there's nothing that we could compare to him and he is spirit. Third of all, his very name is to be kept holy. You ever thought about that? In a world that curses his name daily. I, mean, I would almost challenge you to, to watch a movie or a television show where somebody doesn't take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in vain. Very rarely have I ever heard anybody take Muhammad's name in vain. Doesn't that kind of tell you something? Yeah. Very rarely have I ever heard that. Very rarely have I heard, I've heard Joseph Smith laughed at and, and mocked, but very rarely would you, you hear anybody curse the name of Joseph Smith, you know, it's when they get angry or hit their finger with a hammer or something like that. It, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and, and the Holy God. His name is taken in vain. His very name must be kept holy. Fourth of all, on the Sabbath, there's the most controversial one of all. Many Christians will tell you that there is no Sabbath day, that it doesn't exist. And um, really, I think uh, they, they are saying something that kind of appears to be true because the Old Testament parts of the Sabbath day have been done away with. How far you can walk in the day not to kindle a fire on that day. Okay, there are things that were put in by the Mosaic law that included, but the Sabbath day is something that existed before the fourth commandment was actually codified, still exists today, and it's simply this. There's an appointed time and an appointed way of worshiping God. That was true in the Old Testament. It's still true today. An appointed time and an appointed way to worship God. And of course, um, now in this new covenant age where the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Sunday is the appointed time. Uh, every day is the Lord's day to a great extent, that's true. But there is a Sunday where the saints of God gather together to worship his name in the way that he's appointed. And you know what? In the Old Testament, it was very, very calculated. It was very, very strict. There were certain days that you did one thing or certain days that you did another. In the New Covenant, we worship God very freely. We worship Him in the way that He's appointed. We worship Him in prayer. We worship Him in singing. We worship Him in listening to the preached word that comes from the word of God. And these are the things we do. We gather together as a people. Afterwards, we fellowship and, and have time together. We partake of communion. We partake of baptism. These are the things of new covenant worship. You know, it's very simple. It's very plain. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and uh, 
you know, good old, good old friend, Lance, Lance and April were here and visiting. And some of you know who Lance and April are, you know. Uh, April grew up in the church here. And then they got married and, and they were members of the church until they moved up uh, to Napa. Now they're living in Sacramento, by the way, you know, and bought a house and the Lord's been good to them. And they're real close to Pete and Pam Teofilo, uh, April's parents. But, you know, I brought Lance in here and just showed him around. He said, ah, yes, simple worship. Simple worship is, is what we have. And that's not an insult. That's a compliment. That's a great thing. That's what we should have. We don't need all the adornments. You want to find adornments? Go to the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, they'll, they'll have items of gold. They'll have venerations of, of all sorts of things. Things that really are, are very old covenant, not new covenant. Because the Roman Catholic Church is a very old covenant church in the wrong way. In the wrong way. But um, the fourth commandment. An appointed time and method of worshiping God in the way that he has dictated in his word. And guess what? It's, well, I won't, I'm going to stop. Because <laughs> I don't have anything in my notes. I'm going to say things that uh, I'll probably be sorry for. You know? I wanted to just end there. So I'm ending there. And then we go to the commandments about man to man. Commandments of man to man. Honoring your parents. I'm not sure that there's a society that maybe I'll be proven wrong by this because just about anything is possible in a sin-fallen world. But is there a society uh, that uh, tells you to hate your parents? Children naturally love their parents. Now, I'll admit, in our psychobabble society, uh, we can blame all of our problems on our parents. Okay, So that maybe I stand corrected there. But it's just kind of cool to watch little children look at their parents with that adulation that they have, you know, as their little children. There you go. No murder, no sexual immorality. That's commandment number seven. Uh, our society has destroyed that. We're not the first to destroy that commandment. Uh, the, ancient, um, the ancient peoples around Israel were unbelievably immoral in ways that I won't share with you, but they were just vicious and vile and immoral and gloried in it. No stealing. No lying. And then one that is very interesting, I think, yet it's very, very true. One that you'd say, well, how would you ever know if somebody was doing that? Sometimes you can tell. But really, it's a sin of the heart. Just like making idols is a sin of the heart. No coveting. No coveting. It's a great sin. A great sin to God. A great offense. Well, sin existed before the Ten Commandments were codified. This is true. The Ten Commandments existed even in the heart of sinful man, tablets of stone. But they were repressed. They were pressed down. They were forsaken. They were marred. They were changed around. They were ruined, you know. And sometimes men were able to, as we saw in Romans 1, completely obliterate the idea of God's commandments from our mind and start to rejoice in evil. Well, I don't think we've ever seen that, have we? Have we seen anybody rejoicing in evil? 
um, being sarcastic. I hope sarcastic doesn't fit into one of, okay. <laughs> Probably shouldn't be sarcastic. Fact of the matter is, our society has really moved towards praising evil and praising what's wrong. Well, once the Ten Commandments were codified, written on tablets of stone, delivered to Moses, uh, all men could then read them, they could see them. We even find in ancient cultures actually certain parts of the Ten Commandments being part of their laws too, you know. Well, which is good. But the purpose of the law, and that's what I'm talking about, the purpose of the law is to show that we are lawbreakers deserving of hell. Then the gospel comes to us. And God saves sinners. Well, verse 21, we have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. We have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Got a couple of quotes for you that are on your outline. And um, Martin Luther said, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. I guess that's about as good as you're going to say it right there when you come right down to it. And... Um, we might ask, why mention the law in this context? The reason we mention it is given to us in the book of Galatians, also along with Romans, just a backup scripture to help us understand. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. We learned, we were taught, we understood. Romans 3.20 says much the same thing. Romans 3.20, just flip back a page. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law was never to save us. The purpose of the law was to show us that we're sinners that need to be saved. And Paul's goal is to contrast our sin with Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness, the righteousness that's found in verse 21, that so grace might reign through righteousness, dikaiosune, is the, the Greek term, the Greek word there. And dikaiosune is translated righteousness. And as deep as sin has gone, Christ's righteousness has gone deeper. It's given to us, and it goes deeper than the stain. Spurgeon said this, yeah, it's on your outline. Sin may be a river, but grace is an ocean. Sin may be a mountain, but grace is like Noah's flood, which prevailed over the tops of the mountains, 15 cubits upward. Well, we're going to deal with verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. But we're not going to exhaust them today. We're, we're going to deal with them in two different ways. And um, starting in the month of December, Pastor Ken's going to be preaching four Advent sermons for us, leading us up to Christmas time which we're thankful that he is going to do that and will lead us into that particular season, which the Bible talks a lot about, 
you know, it does. And our society somewhat recognizes it and understands it, somewhat, you know. Well, we're going to approach the, the passage in verses 1 through 4 in two different ways. And uh, one's going to be union with Christ and all that that means. But before we do that, that'll be when we resume the end of December. Before we do that, we want to talk about something that symbolizes this union with Christ, that Paul uses as an illustration, one that is a very physical thing. You know, God still, the Old Covenant has a lot of physical things involved with it, but there's still physical things. And the two ordinances that have been given to us that are physical things is water baptism and also the Lord's Supper with the, the bread and the wine. Okay, so union with Christ can be described as our spiritual baptism. And water baptism is a picture of that spiritual baptism, that union with Christ, our identification with Christ. So we'll just look at it under two heads that way. Or we'll actually just look at it under one head today, water baptism. But do not forget that really this is picturing the reality of regeneration, the washing of water by the word, the change that took place in our heart, the thing that God did that caused us to reach out to God because our heart was changed. And the reason you have faith is because your heart was changed. God's grace came to you and changed your heart. And that's a wonderful matchless grace that would do such a thing as that. Left to yourself, you would have ended up in ruin absolute ruin. Who knows how bad that ruin could have been? Left to yourself, you're capable of anything. Let, don't just say you, me. Left to myself, I'm capable of anything. Thank the Lord that he didn't leave us to ourselves. Thank the Lord that amazing grace has come in. Water baptism pictures the reality of what God has done for a Christian. Let me read verses 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I'll just stop there. That's, that's taken from verse 20. That answers verse 20 of chapter 5, you know, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so somebody in their perverted mind could say, well, then I'm going to sin all I can so I can get more grace, you know. And uh, my translation says, certainly not, verse 2, no. By no means is the way that I think it's the ESV translates it. The old King James says, God forbid, which is an interesting translation because theos is, is not in there at all, you know, <laughs> the word God. In fact, uh, none of those translations are actually literal translations of what the Greek says. Um, the Greek, uh, it, it says, and, and I, didn't, I didn't see anybody that translated it this way, but as you looked at the Greek, literally it said, may it not be. But there's a reason that that isn't translated that way, may it not be. Because that's kind of, uh, to us, yeah, it's not, it's not very strong. May it not be, you know. No, in the Greek, this is emphatic. It's strong. And so it's an idiom. It doesn't uh, actually, it isn't meant to be translated exactly word for word where it says, may it not be. 
It's not meant to be translated like that. It's meant to be translated in a strong way. So certainly not, by no means. Uh, God forbid, there's other ways to do it. I looked up about uh, three or four other ways that um, it's often translated, but um, it's an idiom. And the rest of chapter six explains why this would be wrong. Because we're in union with Christ. Now this passage explains spiritual baptism, not water baptism. We can use it to show the meaning of Christian baptism and what it is and what it symbolizes. And uh, we're going to have a baptism in, in a couple of weeks now, December 10th. Um, Araceli Lalo, our, our, the candidates for baptism, they uh, actually are going to be baptized. They'll be given their testimony at the 10 o'clock service. You'll want to be there for that. Uh, the elders have read their testimony. It's an excellent testimony, as all Christian testimonies are. And you'll want to be here for that at the 10 o'clock service. And then we'll have the baptism after the preaching of the word on um, December 10th. So we'll get a chance to actually see, uh, once again, this great thing that God has given to us in water baptism. It's appropriate that Paul uses the physical act of Christian baptism, something that the Christian community could understand as an illustration of spiritual baptism. Spiritual baptism, another name for regeneration, an act of God's free grace. It's the change of heart, as I already said. Water's not the main issue here. And if we don't understand that, we'll come to a bad conclusion. Because those that believe you're saved by baptism use this particular passage, taking it literally and not seeing uh, what Paul is actually saying to try to prove that you're saved by water baptism, be it whether it's poured on your head or sprinkled on your head or immersed. You can't trust baptism for your salvation. Okay. I've read many Reformed commentators over the years on this passage, and uh, I really can't think of any exceptions from the Orthodox um, Reformed commentators, most of whom do practice baptizing babies, but uh, they make it clear, the Orthodox do, that you do not even begin to think that you're saved by your water baptism. It's union with Christ that saves. And we say, absolutely, we, we agree. We agree with our Reformed brethren on that. We don't agree that they're baptizing their infants, uh, but we do agree that uh, it does not, water baptism does not save you. It's spiritual union with Christ that saves. Which brings us to our next point. You cannot be, you, you, can, you can be saved without water baptism. That's how I put it. You can be saved without water baptism. Thief on the cross, probably the prime example. He certainly wasn't baptized, but we know that he's uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, and only those that are already united to Christ are the true candidates for baptism. Okay, so spiritual, you know, um, you, don't, you don't need to be baptized in order to be saved. But I almost hesitate to say that because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea, so I'm gonna elaborate just a little bit. Let me ask you a question. Why would a Christian be willing to violate 
a direct command of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's the one that instituted baptism? Why would you say, well, I don't think it's very important. When the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. So why would we really just say, ah, baptism, it doesn't save, I'm saved, why should I be baptized? You know, let me say this. Every Christian should be baptized. Every Christian should be baptized. And there are, okay, I'll give it just a little bit of leniency here in this respect, but I don't think it would apply to any of you that are here today, and I doubt any listening that would apply to them either. Every Christian should be baptized. Uh, maybe it's impossible to be baptized. Maybe it just isn't a possibility. There's just no way it can happen. Well, a thief on the cross couldn't be baptized. He's, a, again, another example. Um, it's possible for some that there are medical reasons where they could not be baptized. Uh, our dear sister that our church helps take care of, Diane, at, at this point in her life, she couldn't be baptized. She's already been baptized. But she couldn't be baptized right now. It would be a physical impossibility. So that can happen, you know. Or it can even be an excessive fear of water. And I've seen that happen. I, I saw somebody that had just a, a, a phobia and terror of water uh, convinced to be baptized. And uh, I don't know what that phobia came from. This was many, many years ago in a different church. But uh, as the lady was put down into the water and they had uh, three other guys to help just in case things went wrong. Things went wrong, you know. Um, the, the pastor, she just thrashed violently as she went under the water. The pastor dropped her and then she fell to the bottom of the pool where she was being. And then they, they got her out. But she came out screaming and it was like, it wasn't a beautiful picture. Okay. That have been, may have been a case where we would have said, you know, uh, we might want to make an exception here, or we may want to wait um, uh, to, to deal with this when there's less fear. So anyway, those are a few exceptions, but the exception is not the rule. Every Christian should be baptized, is the rule. And every Christian should have the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch. As, as, a, as he was spoken to, and as he was riding in the chariot, and as he saw Isaiah for the first time, as he's reading Isaiah 53, by God's providence, by the way, as he's reading Isaiah 53 by God's providence, they're riding along in the middle of the desert, come upon an oasis. And he says, what hinders me from being baptized? Well, there had been a hindrance before, right? There had been a hindrance, there was no water. <laughs> Can't be baptized without water. And certainly he had a jug of water with him. So if sprinkling was the method of baptism, that would have been easy enough to do. I'm sure he wouldn't have depleted his resources to have a little bit of water sprinkled on his head. I'm not trying to be facetious, just trying to be honest to the text, you know. But he says, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? They went down into the water and he was baptized. And he came up out of the water and uh, then... You know, well, the rest of the story is there. So, 
Every Christian should be baptized. That man became a Christian that day, not because he was baptized, but he was the proper candidate for baptism because the God had changed his heart. So that's what we see from the Word of God. Water baptism is an illustration of spiritual baptism. Baptism is a sign and shadow of the reality of what has already happened to us when we were put into Christ. And the baptismal formula that we use here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church is not unique to us, but it's very much scriptural, comes from the scriptures. And no one particular verse, but it says, on your profession of faith as Jesus Christ, as your Savior, and in obedience to his divine command, I baptize you, my brother, or I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And then, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. And that's exactly what the scripture says here. Let's look at it again. Verse 2, certainly not, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism. And that Greek word buried uh, actually can also be interred. It can do that. It's got a burial context to it. That's exactly what it means. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that's what you're saying when you're baptized. Almost all of you have been baptized. And remember what that means. You know, some of the false cultures in this world understand what it means maybe more than a lot of Christians do. Because you can say that you're a Christian, and they don't like it. You can say, I'm getting baptized, and they'll hate it. Why? Because they understand the imagery of what's happening here. You're giving up your old life. You're giving up your old self. You're now going to walk in newness of life. You professed Jesus Christ in the way that the Bible tells us to profess him. You're now a Christian. And it's a demonstrable thing. Your baptism means something tremendous. And really, for those that um, come from other cultures of, that are closer to Christianity, maybe baptize as a baby, it can be quite offensive when you truly are baptized. But, but you already were baptized. No mom, no dad, that, that doesn't count. You know, that's, that's, that's not real baptism. You know, getting baptized the way that the new covenant tells us to do it, you know, and that can be really offensive. It can be really, but you know, sometimes we have to take a stand for Christ. That is even an offensive stand for Christ. Baptism does save us. Spiritual baptism, identification with Christ, being found in him and having his merits applied to us, that's salvation and that's what water baptism pictures. I remember baptizing a, a young man. Um, oh, he's in his 20s. And um, he was very disappointed in his baptism. 
And uh, I was surprised at that. He says, I don't feel any different. I guess he thought he was going to get zapped or something, you know. We don't put electric shocks in our baptismal water. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was sad. He, he just was disappointed. And I tried to help him, tried to encourage him that uh, this isn't what it's about. It's a reality. It's, it's a picture that's of a reality that's already taken place. Well, I suspect one of the reasons he was disappointed because it turned out to be uh, a few years later, he was gone from the Lord. And to my knowledge, no repentance, you know. Went off into sin, went off into his own way, went off to did his, do his own thing. Very sad. I don't know. I lost all track of him. I've kept, tried to keep track of him through the years, but oh, I'd say it's been a good 10 years since I've heard from him again. And uh, last I heard, he was not doing well at all, you know. Well, it well could be that he... We thought, we, he professed Christ. He knew a lot. He really did. Um, but he just didn't, maybe he just didn't have the reality. Or maybe God's going to be merciful to him and save him. I, I don't know. Only God knows that. I'm going to conclude very quickly here with just a few thoughts. Baptism is a sign. It's a sign that signifies or indicates a fact. Water baptism is a sign of what God has done for us in putting us into Christ. He died and we died. He rose and we rose. We go into the water just like he went into the grave, buried, interred, so to speak. We come up out of the water as he came up out of the grave. And he came, of course, to absolutely um, resurrected, holy, ascended to his father. Well, that doesn't happen to us. But we now walk in newness of life, just like it says in verse number four. We walk in a way that's different than the way that we used to walk. We're professing Christ that way. Baptism is a sign. Baptism is also a seal. Now, that sometimes is taken wrong, too. Um, some people take that one too far. But baptism is a seal in the proper sense of the word. It's a guarantee of God's faithfulness to his promises. God has promised to receive all that come to Christ by faith. And God has promised never to lose one who has come to Christ by faith. And uh, I'll just quote this one. Baptism, when properly administered by a proper baptismal candidate, is a seal that we're identified with Christ and just as surely as he rose from the dead, we have risen to newness of life in him. And, and I wrote that, so I'll quote myself. Okay, so there you go. We shall be resurrected as surely as he was resurrected. Signs and seals, they're important, but they must not be overvalued. They can be easily overvalued. But used rightly, baptism and the Lord's Supper is a great comfort and a means of grace. Not saving grace, but for those that already have saving grace, it's a means that strengthens us. Just like prayer strengthens us. Just like uh, so other, the, the other means of grace strengthen us. I want you to think about the rainbow. The rainbow is a sign, Right? 
What's it a sign of? You know, so most of you know. It's a sign that God will never destroy the earth with a flood again. It's not a sign there'll never be floods. No, there'll be local floods. There'll be floods here and there, and sometimes catastrophic floods. But never anything like uh, Noah's flood, which, as Spurgeon reminded us, uh, covered the top of the highest mountains 15 cubits. And that's a lot. That's more than 20 feet, you know? Okay. That's never going to happen again. And so God put his bow in the air. And there's just something about it that really everybody marvels at. I've never seen anybody, you know, a lost person even. I've never had anybody ever say, I'm saying nobody's ever done this, but I've never had anybody say, um, hey, look, there's a rainbow. They say, oh, I hate rainbows, you know. <laughs> never heard anybody say they hate rainbows, you know. Well, it's a sign. And uh, it must not be undervalued. You're driving along and you see a sign that says bump ahead. You say, well, I don't feel any bump. You will in a couple minutes or moments. <laughs> you know. so bump ahead. Okay, you're going to see it. The sign isn't the bump. The sign is the sign, and the bump is the bump. And uh, that's the way it is with baptism as a sign and a seal. Seals in the Bible. We've seen that uh, in the book of Revelation. If you've been in the Revelation series, you've seen seals already. And seals generally denote ownership. In fact, the Greek word denotes ownership. And, and what it talks about is the fact that uh, you take the, well, the illustration that's used usually to explain the Greek word is that uh, a nobleman of some sort or an official of some sort has a letter that he wants to have delivered to another nobleman that has royal decrees and such like that. So what he does, he writes it out, puts it in an envelope, and seals it. Seals it. Seals it with a mark. Not, not looking at it. And, like we do with stamps, or now thankfully we have the peel-offs, you know. Okay, seals it with a wax, his ring, and now uh, you cannot open that. It's for the intended use only. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna close here with what our confession says. You can look up Ephesians later at your own time, talking about signs and seals. It actually talks about maybe we're sealed with the Holy Ghost until the appointed time. Um, our confession says in chapter 29, paragraph 2, and it's a really great quote. It's what makes us Baptists. You know, well, amongst our Reformed brethren that we love. We love our, our strong uh, Reformed brethren. We appreciate them very much. I'm glad to say it in the last 30 years, 30 years ago, um, what you'd have heard most of our Reformed brethren say is, there's no such thing as a Reformed Baptist. And that's what they would say all the time. There's no such thing as a Reformed Baptist, you know. And now, uh, there's been a, a little more tolerance, you know. And uh, we appreciate our Reformed brethren and read their commentaries and, and profit from them. But our confession says this, and it's on your outline. Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Talking about the ordinance of baptism. And uh, what a blessing it is. I, I think one of the problems that happens amongst our evangelical brethren that are really baptistic, they, they baptize by immersion, uh, like we do, 
But one of the problems is um, some, not all, but some, I think, don't give enough attention to either baptism or the Lord's Supper, you know, um, because they don't see it as a means of grace or, or other reasons, whatever it may be. You know. But they're important because of what they symbolize. They're valuable. They're the only two ordinances given to the church and two of the Lord's appointed means of grace to build up his people. I'll just close with this. This is the heart of the gospel we're talking about. You know, the whole Trinity was involved with baptism. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. And I don't have to ask you if you're in Adam or if you've been in Adam, because you're a child of Adam. You have Adam for a daddy, just like I do, all in Adam die. But I will ask you this, are you in Christ? Because not everyone is. Only those who come to him by faith and repentance are in Christ. Only those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, only those who have been baptized spiritually into Christ, and then profess that by their water baptism. You know, we will not physically baptize anyone unless we have good reason to believe that God has already done his work of spiritual baptism in the heart. Ultimately, only God knows. But we would try to make sure we find out. Do the best we can. And, and interview and talk and make sure it's understood by God's grace. The question is, are you alive in Christ or part of the dead in Adam? It's only two places, only two people, only two federal heads. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth of your word. We would just pray that you would just work in hearts and lives as only you can. Lord, we thank you for baptism. What a wonderful picture it is when we understand. What a wonderful thing to be baptized. We encourage our people when they watch a baptism of one of their fellow believers here at Sovereign Grace that they remember their own baptism. They remember the promises that were given to them and the promises that they were making to walk in newness of life. Father, it's, it's like washing away the old and putting on the new. It's like that. That's what actually happened to us when we came to Christ by faith. But Father, it pictures that very thing in maybe the greatest way possible. So help us, we pray, to value our baptism and to rejoice in it. And if there's any here that have never been baptized, Lord, I pray they'd come and talk to one of the elders, myself or Pastor Ken or Pastor Mike. We'd be glad to talk about this important aspect, what this is all about. And may Jesus Christ be praised. In his name we pray, amen.